Let me read these words of this commandment and then ask God's blessing on our time as we study them together. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Let's pray. Lord, as we embark on the study of this passage, we need you to open our eyes, not just so that we would understand and learn, but Lord, that you would change our hearts. We have a problem that is so much greater than we can handle on our own. We, we need your help today, O oh Lord. We need the hand of a loving and skillful surgeon to operate on our hearts, that we would have the transforming effect of your word through the power of your spirit today. Father, I pray that you would convict us of areas of sin and prepare us to come to this table, Lord, uh, with a desire for holiness as we have sung. And we ask, Lord, that you would work in power now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Shall not covet. It's interesting how that final sentence kind of just encapsulates everything. You, you can't covet your neighbor's house. You are not to covet your neighbor's wife. You can't covet their workers or his ox. And I, I know many of you, this is really the issue, isn't it? I mean, you wake up in the morning, you look out across the neighbor's pasture, and, and, and there he is staring at you, right? I mean... Look at that beautiful ox or highland cow. Uh, my parents actually have this issue. I don't think it's a problem, uh, but they have the ugliest cow in the neighbor's pasture, the hairiest thing you've ever seen. And uh, John, I don't know if you've got any cows like this. I, I think your cows are way prettier than this. But look at the hair on that cow. I mean, you could just see how maybe back in the day you would see that neighbor that had a cow like that. So gorgeous and say, boy, I kind of wish that cow was my cow. I want that. Well, let's bring it forward. We, we might not be actively having the challenge of coveting our neighbor's ox or his donkey, but maybe this. Maybe this makes a little bit more landing in our modern-day context. Yeah, fa fascinating thing. This is a Lamborghini, too, by the, by the way. But imagine if you're this guy, okay? Not the guy with the Lamborghinis. The guy with the minivan. You see him? Okay? This, this is the guy I'm talking about. And you, I mean, you're cruising. It's a 1992 custom push-button slide doors, right? VCR with the flip-down screen. Anyone? I've been there. I bought one like that in California. It died before I got home from the car lot. I caused a horrible traffic jam in uh, rush hour traffic in the East Bay uh, of California. Uh, but you're this guy, okay, you're cruising home from work, You've, you're doing great, it's a good day, you're driving your minivan, you're rolling, right, and, and, and then you drive past Tim's house, your next door neighbor, and Tim, well, he's already had one Lamborghini for a while, and he parks it out in the driveway, and it's clean, and he polishes it, and you're like, oh, that's, that's cool, good for Tim, but now he's got two and all of a sudden, something happens in your heart. And you begin to think, well, how many Lamborghinis, Tim, do you really need? I have a minivan. I don't have any. 
And then there's that line, right? There's that line that it begins to cross. And you say, you know what? I want that. I, I deserve a Lamborghini. And I'm driving this piece of junk, this minivan. Barely keep it running. How do you guard your heart if you're the minivan guy and you live next to the Lamborghini guy? You see, what happens here is it's subtle. It's not so much an action. At this point, he's not going to attack Tim, right? That might come later, though. If this is not addressed and called what it is, this sin can become something horrible. How many lives have been lost because something roots in the, in the heart of covetousness? and says, I want that. I want what he has. I deserve that. I don't like what I have. I want that. I want my neighbor's ox or a ventador. What does it mean to covet? We can't assume a definition for this word. We need to explore this a little bit. And really, this is, this is just like pulling the curtains back on our hearts, friends. This is, this is every, everyone, uh, many days at least throughout the week. And sometimes without us even knowing that we are coveting, we are coveting. To covet is to desire someone or something that is not yours to have. Either because, as we saw last week, it belongs to someone else, someone else's property, or it is off-limits. It is not yours. It is, it is against the law, and yet you desire it. You desire to have it. This gets real. A co-worker gets a promotion, and you don't. But you've been working just as hard. Or a coworker takes a vacation and, and, and you don't. And it's a great vacation. And you're thinking, I want that. A friend has what seems to be an amazing marriage. And yours isn't. Or their spouse is just like an angel. All the time, 24-7. Never a sinner. How about the guy who lives in your dream house, right? The one you watched on TV, and, and you say, that's my, that's, that should be mine. I, I want that. The seemingly perfect family in church, just the dispel of this, that doesn't exist. I've been in ministry way too long to know that. There is no perfect marriage. There is no perfect family, perfect children. It is a beautiful mess. We are all works in progress. But, but what, what do you do when you're having an issue and you look across the room and you see this family and they're just all smiles and hugs and it's, it seems to seem perfect. It's easy to say, I want that. Fellow student who's gifted at everything. The sibling who excels in something that you don't. This is real, isn't it, kids? Right? How do you deal with with God's varied gifts according to His grace. To some this, to others this. Hmm. A friend in her perfect wardrobe. This is really the, the deal breaker for me. You know, I, now I'm trying to identify out there, okay? I, I'll tell you what was for me. Chad's hair. And let me tell you about Chad. 
Chad was this dude that I went to school with. He was a tough guy, okay? On the football field, he scored touchdowns a lot. He, he was a, a stud on the soccer field, too. He scored a lot of the goals. He was the object of a lot of feminine desire. Chad was a good-looking dude. And uh, Chad had this really cool hair. Chad, I don't, I don't know quite how to describe it, but when he ran, it would do this thing. And, and, and it was always perfect. And I went through a stage where I was kind of like, man, I, I mean, I had the, the perm for a while in the back, the, the youth pastor perm. I did that for about two months. I was on the tail end of that being cool, and I found out when I went to school that it wasn't anymore. But Chad's hair was so perfect. And if I'm honest, I kind of wanted my hair to look like Chad. So I would put hydrogen peroxide and lemon juice in my hair and then sit in the sun while my brain shriveled <laughs> and my hair got bleached blonde because Chad's hair was blonde. And, and here's the irony is, is that Chad's bald now. <laughs> and so maybe I didn't want it quite as much as I thought at the time. I love Chad. You know, it's so cool. Our youth pastor was a soccer coach, and he shared the gospel. Half the soccer team got saved, and all of a sudden, these guys that were just uh, so, so, so high above what felt like where I was, the youth pastor said, here, go hang out with Jeremy, and he'll show you what it means to follow Jesus. And all of a sudden, I'm friends with Chad, and I got to help mentor him and encourage him along the way and to walk with Jesus. He, he was looking at me and saying, I want to be more like what you're doing in following Jesus. And man, so cool how God works. So hopefully you've made some type of connection with this tendency. It is a sin of the heart. It is an inclination uh, to long for in an evil way to desire something that is not yours to have. Now, let's be clear. It is not desire itself that is sinful. It, God wired us to be a people who desire. We desire all the time. In fact, John Piper so perfectly named his ministry, Desiring God. The point, as C.S. Lewis said, is not that our desires are, are too great, but they're too small. Right? We, we have weak and wimpy desires for little things when we should be desiring God, desiring all that He has given us in Christ. Misplaced desires or disproportionate desire, that is evil desire. That is the sinful desire that we're speaking of here. Covetousness is evil desire. It's misplaced desire. I want what I don't have and what I can't have. And I want it such that it is it's controlling me. It it's becomes an overpowering thought. I dwell on it. I think about it. I fantasize about it. I give myself to it. And it takes me. Hmm. Put to death. To, to see the terminology of Paul in the New Testament. How serious is this? You've got to kill it. Choke it out. Put to death. Mortify, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, 
impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which then he adds, which is idolatry. That's another definition of covetousness. It's, it's idolatry. It's when I deify a desire and bow to it. I put up a God to worship that competes then with the God who is. And I give myself to it. My adoration, my time, my money, my focus, my thoughts. Even a life can be given to covetousness and idolatry. So I want to ask some questions here and uh, move through. You've, I don't know if you've seen the sermon notes, I normally don't have this many things to fill in, but you're definitely going to want to track along here and fill these in as we go. Uh, to covet is to desire someone or something that is not yours to have. That's the first point. Now, what does covetousness reveal? Let's uncover it a little bit. What's operating when I covet? Number one, covetousness reveals ungratefulness in my heart toward God. It is a failure to be thankful. It is a failure to be uh, rightly grateful. When we sing, you know, count your many blessings, name them one by one, that is one of the best prescriptions for a covetous heart. Stop and consider, what do you have that you have not been given? God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. He has lavished upon us so many good things. Namely, chiefly, we've been given life in Jesus Christ. We've been given God himself. Restored. Although they knew God, Romans chapter 1 tells, uh, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. These are two foundations for depravity. They knew him. They knew he existed. They knew uh, some about God. They opened their eyes and they experienced life in this world. But they did not honor God or give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Why? Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, he gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, and here's our word covetousness. It thrives in an ungrateful heart. Covetousness thrives in a heart that feels ripped off by God. You should do this more. I deserve this. I feel cheated by you for this. If you are there, you are on the verge of giving your heart to covetousness. It'll shred you on the inside. Hmm. Number two, covetousness reveals the inclination of my heart toward other gods. If you want to hunt for idols, hunt for desires that are misappropriated. Hunt for desires that land other places. You want to find competing deities that you're tempted to bow before? Listen to your heart and what it longs for, what it covets. When you watch Fixer Upper, or uh, the latest TV show that shows this or that, or what? I mean, ask what, what shows do you watch? Many times, that's a great way to find your idols. Hmm. The question is not if, the question is where. All of us 
battle alternate gods. We all have to stay careful to guard against replacement gods. Our hearts are idle factories, John Calvin said. Number three, covetousness reveals a lack of contentment in God's sovereign plan for my life. One of the most fundamental displays of covetousness is found in an uncontented heart. I'm not happy. I, I, I'm just not happy with your operating in my life. Now, we don't often say it this way, but when you dig down deep enough, our issue many times is not this direction. It's this direction, right? I see that Lamborghini, and I'm saying, I deserve that. Who am I saying that to, really? If, I, if I'm honest, I'm saying it up to the Lord. Hmm. If I only had this, then I'd be happy. If only I had this, then I know I'd be happy. How's that worked out? Just rewind the tape in these pursuits. If I looked like so-and-so, then I'd be happy. Chad's hair. Just had Chad's hair. How, this is at the heart of it. This is, what, this is what we're saying. I want, Lord, what your sovereign hand has kept from me. I want, I want what you've said no to. So you're married, and you're hanging out with other couples, and there's another man's wife who catches your eye, and you say, she's nice. That's not sinful. But the next step, it's that line where you go to the next step. I wish I was married to her. Whoa. Where do you think affairs begin? Adultery begins. Covetousness in the heart. I want what your sovereign hand has kept from me. Covetousness is rebellion against the sovereignty of God at its core. Number four, covetousness reveals the root of many other sins in my life. If you want to dig deep, well, dig and try to find covetousness because behind a lot of the other sins that operate in your life is this one. And it's deadly. It is brutal. It's a terrible slave master. It's a cesspool for sin. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you, James writes? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you mur murder. What, what, what is that? Well, you covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. He begins by showing us the finish line. This is where covetousness wants to take you. It wants to take you all the way down. Hold nothing back. Ahab has this beautiful property. He's the man, right? He's the king. And uh, is it Nabal? He's got a vineyard right next. And, and, and Ahab, he wants a vegetable garden. So he says, give me your vineyard. I want to dig it up and plant vegetables. Uh, he says, no, that this land is the inheritance of my forefathers. I can't just give it to you. This is part of my inheritance that I'm passing on to generations from now. 
Well, that did not please the king. So he goes to his wife, Jezebel, and Jezebel's like, I'll take care of this. She basically sets up a situation where two guys lie. They accuse him of a, a sin that would warrant death, and then they kill him. And then she goes to her husband and says, I took care of the deal. Go get your vineyard. So he does. And the Lord brings down the gavel. Coveting. It all started with, that's a nice piece of property there. It's right next to where I live. Kind of wish that was mine. Hmm. It's been said that if you have broken the first nine of the Ten Commandments, you've broken the tenth. And I would add, if you are breaking the tenth, you're about to break the other nine. Just give it a little time. The tenth commandment is, is the core of these. In fact, in, in some sense, you could see all of these commandments as one commandment interconnected because you can see how the dominoes fall as you begin to break one. They, it's just, it's chaos. Now, how to uncover covetousness. But what we need to do is, is pull the covers back and say, what's operating in my heart? Where is this a, a, a deal for me? And maybe not the ox or the Lamborghini, but probably somewhere there's an operating covetousness that we've got to guard and fight back against. Kevin DeYoung had some excellent stuff. I'm going to just give you some of what he asked, and I added some of my own in here, but I, I love this one. Can I be satisfied in the present? When I went to Bible school in downtown Chicago, I was completely out of my element. I am not an inner city guy. I grew up in Yakima on, on the west side where the pastures and everything were, and, and, and living in the city was very hard for me. I was extremely discontented, and I battled a terrible attitude and here's what I would do to, to address this attitude. Rather than confess it and call it sinful, I would find a place or a time to fix hope and then just focus on that. So here I am. It's August. I'm going back to Chicago. And I know it's going to be bitter cold here soon, but Christmas is coming. And if I can just endure these months, I'll get to Christmas and everything will be better. Well, Christmas would come. We'd fly home. Yes, it's great. And Christmas would end. And I would need to fix my hope on something else because I'm going to the windy city in the dead of winter and it's all gray and it's all cement and it's a rough place to live for this kid, at least. And so I'm thinking about spring break. And then spring break would be over and I'd be depressed and discouraged. No, it's just summer vacation, yes. I lived years of my life, not in the present, but in what is going to fix the present by anticipating what is coming. Hmm. Remember when everything was great, right? You get stuck back there. If we could just go back to then, it was awesome. You get stuck in the past or you get stuck in the future. Can you live in the present satisfied in who God is for you? If not, you have a coveting issue. If we can just finish this project then everything will be better. I can't wait till this is done. I can't wait till the kids are out of school. I can't wait till the kids are back in school, right? I mean, can't wait till it rains. Can't wait till it stops raining. It's happening all the time. Facebook reveals coveting on a grand scale. 
Here's another question. How far am I willing to go to get what I want? How, how far will I take it? I want that. What he has, that, I, I want that. I want one of those in my life. Well, what am I willing to sacrifice to get that? Some people will give a, a, a life of work to arrive at that and then find that it gets cold at night. Or they'll work and work and work and buy a dream house and then realize how much work it is to keep up a dream house so that it stays a dream house. Because it just, it's a, what is it, the third law or the second law of thermodynamics? Fourth law? I forget those. It's going down. The second, thank you. It's going down. You've got to work to keep it up. Will I hurt people? Will I break the law? Will I cheat on my taxes? Will I steal or lie? How far will I go to get what I want? Covetousness drives it. It drives it. You could say it this way. Do I have an obsession with possession? Do my things control me? The things that I amass around me. Do they control me? Do they drive me? Am I hungry in the morning for more stuff? Is that what motivates me as I live my week? It's not wrong to want to buy something. It's not wrong to want to, to, to work hard to save up. Ethan worked hard all summer mowing grass so he could buy himself a, a, a MacBook Air. Good job. What's wrong is what happens in the heart when you begin to bow before it. And you desire it more. You know what sometimes happens is people work so hard to amass stuff that they just kind of disappear. They just get lost in their stuff. It takes work to keep stuff, to manage all your stuff. Is it worth it? Someone in the crowd shouted out to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator uh, over you? And then he said to them, Take care. So he's teaching in this moment. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. He knows this man's heart. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. If ever we needed that rebuke, it would be in a materialistic culture that surrounds us. How easy it is to become just caught up in the current of amassing your best life now. Build an earthly kingdom. Gather, gather, stack it. Your life does not consist in what you own. Be on your guard, Jesus said. Here's a man whose older sibling, we assume, received the full inheritance, which is what's prescribed. And he wants Jesus, and this is his interaction with Christ. Of all the things you could interact with Jesus on, he says, make my brother give me money that I pretty much deserve. Jesus says, it's coveting. Here's a question. Can I let go of what I have? This one just nails us. Can, can, I, 
can I let go? If God were to say, let it go, do I hold it with just a white-knuckled fist? No, this is mine. Or am I willing and able to say, Lord, it's yours anyway? I give it. Does this call to mind an interaction? A man who came to Jesus and claimed he'd kept all of the commandments. And Jesus knew his heart. And he said what? I have one more thing for you to do. Go sell everything you own. Give it to the poor and follow me. He knew the operation of this man's heart. He knew he was extremely wealthy. And he, he knew in that that this man's wealth was how he understood uh, his idol, his, his true God. He, he valued this more than Jesus, his stuff. As far as we can tell, he didn't come back. He walked away. Oh, may we not be a people in a materialistic age that cling to our stuff so tightly that we would leave the faith. Don't forget Demas. In love with the present age, in love with the present world, he departed the faith. That should be a warning to us. Another question, am I free to fully enter into the joy of others when God blesses them? This is, this is huge. Something amazing happens to someone you know, and they're telling you about it. What are you going to say? Wish that would happen to me. Ooh. That's, that kind of thing never happens to me. I've never gotten to do that. Boy, not only does it suck the the oxygen out of the conversation, but it reveals a covetous heart. Praise God for his blessing. Praise God for what he's given. I'm so happy for you. Yes! Can we enter in? It's so wonderful to just freely say, I'm so proud of God for doing that for you. It's awesome. Another Lamborghini. Wow! Sweet! Can I go for a ride? Every good and perfect gift is from above. If we remind ourselves of this, we will stop having an issue down here. God gives. God is the giver. Hmm. What should we do instead? So here is a prescription. So the, uh, the negative or what we are to avoid is the coveting of anything that belongs to our neighbor. From the heart, then how should we respond? What are we to do? Because every commandment that re restricts us is an, a commandment to encourage us. And this is what we would see. Number one, establish God as your greatest joy and deepest satisfaction. What your heart is longing for more than anything on this earth is God. We try to fill it with all kinds of things. But at the end of the day, only he can satisfy. It's what you need more than anything. This is the gospel. We, we come to Christ and we, we confess, I have bowed before all of this worthless stuff and it's sinful and wrong and, and I have rebelled against you and I, I bow now before you and I trust you to be my Savior, my Lord, and I make you my treasure. 
the joy above all joys. I give my whole life to you. I chase after you. I want to obey you and please you and worship you and live for you. I want more of you. Establish God as your greatest joy. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion. I, man, that could be a headstone. Right? I mean, that, that could be something to put on your headstone. The Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will hope in Him. This is in the book of Lamentations. Okay? That's not just when good gifts rain down in your life. That's even in the midst of Job-like trials. There is a place to find this peace. To place your hope. You are my portion. You are my portion. You, preach this to your heart. God, you are my portion. Number two. Embrace God's sovereign rule in your life. The heart of sin is a suicidal abandonment of the lordship of God. It is a rejection of His rule and an establishment of my kingdom, my will. Turn away from that and trust Christ as Lord. Let Him lead your life. Embrace His sovereign rule in your life and watch what can happen. Paul says, listen, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's not lift that verse from its context. That is not a sports verse, to be clear. That's not just like, let's just quote that and then go win a football game. Paul writes about imprisonment and hunger and neglect. And he says, here's the secret. The Lord is my portion. He is my strength. I can be content. Wow. I mean, it's one thing to learn contentment on this level here, but imagine learning contentment from a man imprisoned. Hmm. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understandings. In, in, in all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. If you want to get to the, uh, the very heart of contentment, this is your verse. If you find yourself being a very discontented person, meditate on this verse again and again and again. Put it in as ammunition to fight back against covetousness and to chase after contentment, which is sort of a weird thing to say. Chase contentment. Long for it. Strive to be content by trusting in the Lord. Trust in Him. It's not fatalistic to say, Lord, you're sovereign. Uh, we're not saying, throw your hands up in the air. Okay, fine, whatever He planned, it's just going to happen. I got nothing else but to just sit here and take it on the chin. Go ahead, Lord. Just 
Do whatever you're going to do. That, that is not biblical embracing of God's sovereignty. He gave us gifts and abilities. He called us to work and to actively participate. He put us on our knees in prayer. We participate in His sovereign rule. And we welcome it in our hearts as we trust Him and obey Him. Enjoy God's best for you with a thankful and contented heart. Come what may. Come what may. Keep your life free from money, the writer of Hebrews says, and be content with what you have. This is so good for us, friends. It's so good for us. Why? What's the reason? What's the basis of this? You are my portion. It goes back to this. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's the foundation of our contentment. You're my portion. Number four, employ God's gifts for His glory and the good of others. It's as I said last week, when we walk in gospel air and we see kingdom purpose to our lives, all of a sudden the stuff that we have has a reason. We leverage what we have for bigger purposes than just us. First for His glory and second for others' good. The good of others. How, how is it that we complete and fulfill all of these commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. If we were to do that, we would be obeying. Employ God's gifts. There is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. These are encouragements to us. A people who live in a culture that is drunk with materialism. We are sold more things every day. I literally saw a car commercial during a football game that said, there are few things that define you more than what you drive. <laughs> Talk about just being blatant with it. What a lie. Believers reject that. Hmm. Response this morning as we prepare to come to the table of the Lord. I would just plead with you to make sure that you have established God as your greatest joy and deepest satisfaction, that you have embraced His sovereign rule in your life, that you enjoy God's best each day, and that you employ His gifts for His glory. If you're here and Jesus is your Savior and Lord, this table means everything. Because Jesus is everything. If you're here and, and Jesus is not your Savior and Lord, today can be the day that you stop chasing after the mirage of stuff and the American dream. It will never satisfy. Run to Jesus and you will find rest and joy and peace. Encourage us as we prepare our hearts to come to this table with these words. Jesus said this, Blessed or happy or satisfied are those who hunger and thirst for what? For righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. And so the question begs, 
What are you hungering for in this life? What drives your passion each week? What do you think about most when you think throughout the week? What are you thirsty for? May it be true more and more of us that we are a people who hunger and thirst for Jesus Christ and for righteousness and obedience as we walk in contentment, trusting the Lord. If the worship team would come now, I want to just encourage you uh, as they prepare to lead us in this song and we engage this table, I would just encourage us to take some time and maybe don't sing for a little bit and just assess your heart. Ask the Lord, where in my heart is the sin of coveting functioning? Where have I given room for this sin? What idols maybe has he pointed out to you in your life? If you're like me, there's ample opportunity for confession. It's a good thing to do as we prepare to come to this table. And so, I want to pray, and then we'll sing, and then we'll gather here at this table. Lord, we thank you for your words to us. We thank you for the gracious gift of conviction for sin. We thank you for loving us enough to tell us when we're just chasing after the wind and missing out on the true joy that is found only in you. Thank you, Lord, for your patience with us because we are such a fickle hearted people. Strengthen our hearts, O God. Show us our sin and and call us to a greater joy, deeper and, and, and more strong desires as we prepare to come to this table. In Jesus' name, amen.